Jesus, we turn our hearts to you even now. We ask you, would you just open up our thoughts, our minds, our imaginations to who you are? God, that you would speak to us. Let your word just come to life. God, thank you that as we gather here this morning, this is not just uh, coming together around uh, a, a pep talk or a spiritual TED talk. Uh, Lord, this is not my information, my words, my wisdom or lack thereof. This is your words. This is your wisdom. And so we ask you, Father, would you bring to life this ancient historic text that was written to uh, an entirely different audience and yet has incredible uh, poignancy for our lives here today. God, bring it to life. Let it transform and reshape our affections and who we are to the glory of God. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me go ahead and read this, and you can go ahead and grab a seat as soon as we're done. Uh, hold on, hold on. Sorry, sorry. That, that was my bad. Sorry. It's all good. All right, listen. First Peter chapter 4, verses 7. That was a little bit awkward, so I, I'll own that one there. All right, First Peter chapter 4, verses uh, 7 through 11. says this, And the end of all things is near. Therefore, again, I'm not going to read through this because we've read through this multiple times. Therefore, pray. And then he goes on to say, also love. And then this is what we really want to focus on is verses 9 through 11. And offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. For God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts, use them well to serve one another. Do you have a gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself is speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with the strength and energy that God himself supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ, all glory and, po- and power from him forever and ever. Amen. You may all be seated. <clears throat> <clears throat> So when Peter wrote this, he's writing to a community of people that are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus faithfully. And they had unique challenges, obviously, to their time. In a lot of ways, the challenges that they faced were not entirely unlike the challenges that we face. Obviously, same type of challenges, different variety. Um, But the question really was the same, which is how do we live faithfully to God in the midst of a culture that, for the most part, is either hostile um, as well as that community is a minority community. They don't represent the masses of people. They don't have political clout or political power. They don't have a stockpile of weapons in which they can uh, create a hostile takeover of the culture. And that would not have been Jesus' way anyhow. But the question is, is how do this, or how does this minority community thrive and flourish and survive really, in the midst of this culture. And this is what Peter is basically communicating to them. And this is one of the things that we've been meditating on over the past several weeks, is that Peter's response, again, he starts off with this little section by saying, the end of all things is near. And again, we've unpacked this multiple times. I'm not going to go back and unpack it. But the big idea that I think Peter's saying is that what has happened is that Jesus has launched an entirely new reality, an entirely new world. And therefore, the old reality, the old world, uh, is passing. It's, it's got a timestamp on it. It's coming to a closure. It's coming to an end. And something new has been birthed and is replacing that. So live right now in such a way as if that new life has completely taken over everything. In other words, it's the vision of Isaiah where he says, as surely as the waters cover the earth, so will the glory of God cover all creation. So he's, I think what he's saying is live as if that's already happened. Because in, in other words, it's already begun, and you have been swept up into this incredible movement. So don't live in a way that's consistent with the typical standard status quo of the world around, because that's time-stamped. 
If you live for that at some point when that fails and when that's over, you will be over alongside with it. And he's saying that you guys are part of this new work, this new creation that God himself has launched. So again, one of the things that he tells us is he basically gives them a code of conduct. He says, therefore, because all this is happening, live in such a way that's consistent with this. So the question then becomes, what is that consistent way? Now, there's a lot of different ways in which you can answer that, but there are three main things that Peter says, here's what I want you to do. Here's the code of conduct I want you to live according to. He says, number one, pray. Number two, love. Number three, uh, serve. So pray, love, and serve. And I mentioned this multiple times, and I think it's worth repeating again. It's shocking to me what he does not say. There's a lot of things that he could have said, but he did not say. In other words, if you were to ask a common Christian today, maybe even a Christian of influence today who has power, or at least thinks that they have power in today's world, how should we live in a culture that does not like you? They might say, well, get out there and vote. It's not a bad thing. I'm not, I'm not in any way knocking that. So do not walk away from this and tweet, Pastor Brian is anti-vote. I'm not anti-vote. That would be a lie. Don't do that. Number two, he does not say stockpile weapons because there's a big battle, big rumble that's going to come. Therefore, fight. Guard yourself. You have rights. doesn't say that. And again, I'm not anti-rights. I'm not anti-having a firearm. I'm not anti-any of that. I'm not anti-political uh, activation activization at all. What, I, what, what I'm suggesting, he is writing to a community of people and he's saying, I, there's certain things I want you to embody. This is shocking to me. And again, if you look at our culture today and the typical or stereotypical voices that oftentimes represent Jesus, these would not be the main corpus of qualities or character conduct codes that would be articulated. I think that's a problem. Because what it is, is it's sort of an innovation to the way of Jesus. And I want to be really clear on this. As a follower of Jesus, it is not our place to innovate the gospel. It's our responsibility to be faithful to what Jesus said. Period. Period. So what did Peter suggest? Pray. Love one another. All people. Serve one another. It's shocking. It's pretty simple, but it's shocking. So with that being said, I want to jump right in to take a look at just essentially the text and make some observations and then um, a couple of fine things, final things I want to just kind of bring to the surface that I think are, are helpful for us in thinking about what he's calling us to. So let's take a look at this, the text and we'll look at a handful of different things. So number one, he points out in verse uh, I don't know where it's at. Verse 9, he says, offer hospitality to all people. The word hospitality uh, literally is the word phileo xenos. Uh, I know I'm not pronouncing that properly. If you are a Greek scholar, you know like that, he failed right there. But the rest of you, you think I just did it correct. So um, there you go. But the point that I would make is this, the big idea, the xeno, you get the word xenophobia, which is the word that he's describing here, be, it's, it's all, to all people is the idea. So he's saying, show friendliness or kindness or love to all people. Literally, it means friendly to strangers. Friendly to strangers. That's what hospitality means. It's, again, he's talking to a group of people that are in the minority group. They have been persecuted, crushed, pressed down, 
shoved off to the margins. In the book of Hebrews, it actually describes that they're part of this community of people um, that are trying to live faithfully the gospel. They've had their rights taken away. They've had their uh, property confiscated. And yet, he describes, you have suffered this joyfully. So these are people trying to faithfully live to Jesus and follow him in a world that's not friendly towards him. And again, his response to those, he says, listen, as you live in this world, show hospitality to all people. Be friendly to strangers. That's kind of shocking. Again, it's very easy to, number one, shun strangers, right? That's easy. That's kind of like my default mode, right? If you're anything like me, I, I value greatly my, my, uh, my, my privacy. I love downtime. So when it's my day off, I just don't like to even check my phone. I don't look at email. I don't want to really talk to people. I just want to just zone out and be apart from sometimes even my family. Like I love my family. I'm very devoted father, very devoted husband. I love my family. But even there are times I just don't even want to engage in conversation with anybody. I just want to shut down, go in a room, take a long, very long nap, maybe a couple of them. But the point that I would make is this, is that what we see here is saying, be friendly to all people. And again, he's the context, he's talking to people that are living in a world right now that's very hostile towards them. So the strangers in their world are not friendly strangers, they're hostile strangers. And how does he say respond? Show kindness to even strangers. Then he goes on to say the next little movement here. He says, without grumbling. This is actually the Greek word, gongusmos. Just even the word gongusmos literally just sounds ugly. Like, what does murmuring or grumbling mean? It just means complaining. And it's the other place that this particular word appears is in the book of Acts, where it describes kind of a little bit of a conflict brewing in the early church where Christians were feeling a little bit snubbed within the daily distribution of the food. And so it says that, from within the midst of that, there broke out a little bit of a grumbling or complaining. This is just kind of classic, normal, like, I don't want to be here. I don't really like these people. They don't really make me happy. I'm really frustrated by all this. It's, again, it's just classic, typical, normal lifestyle for all of us. And I, I want to suggest this to you, especially in the culture in which we live in, that very much so values individualism and privacy. Would you agree with that? Would you say that that's a high value in our culture? Very much so. So in a culture that values those two things, uh, would almost even consider them like virtues. Like if you are a hyper-individualized human being that lives privately, like, wow, like, oh my gosh, you're virtuous. That idea of radical hospitality feels painful. But at some point we have to ask the question, either I live according to the values of the culture, individualism and privacy, or I live according to the values of Jesus, which is radical hospitality without, without grumbling. That's the hard part, right? That without grumbling part, like the hospitality thing where, yeah, we can fake that. We can get by with that. But the whole grumbling part, kind of hard to not fake that because even in your quietness, even in not speaking, sometimes can come across like something wrong with that person. They seem very grumpy. They don't seem very happy or hospitable. There's some, something wrong with the way that they're acting, right? And that's the big idea that grumbling can oftentimes be a part of that. So again, he says, uh, offer hospitality without grumbling. And it goes on in the next little movement of verses it describes, for God has given each one of you. And I, and I love this thought that God gifts each one of us. God is a giver. 
don't know how you think about God or how you have formed or formulated your theological understanding about who God is, I hope it makes space for a God that's radically generous and radically gift-giving. He loves to give gifts to his people. I don't know how you think about God. You may think of him as being stingy, protective, that God kind of has sort of a, uh, a minimal mindset. Like he just, he's, he's scarcity mindset. He doesn't like to give. He has to be begged to give. God, please give this to me. And God's just like, beg a little bit longer. Pray for 16 more years. And then if I'm feeling okay, maybe I'll give it to you. That's not how God is. I realize that sometimes we're wired to think of God that way. But rather, rather what the text is telling us is that this God is actually one that loves to give gifts to his people. Uh, not just so that they could accumulate gifts, but so that those gifts could then be used in a way to bring blessing to other people. In short, as the body works together, the way that it works together is that we serve one another. We love one another. And when that happens something beautiful begins to take place. This community begins to come alive. Uh, Let me put it this way. You are needed. You are valued as a human being, as a part of this broader community, uh, that God has given you unique abilities to be able to step into and to not uh, mobilize or to use those giftings. Uh, Is is, Again, I'm not going to in any way mount any form of guilt or shame, cycle upon it, because that's not helpful either. But it's withholding incredible blessing that could not only come to your life, but could also then be infused in the lives of other people. That God gives certain gifts in order for that end to begin to bring about wholeness within that community. Uh, the next little movement here describes, therefore serve one another. Now this is when he kind of moves into sort of the, moves out of the hospitality mode and moves into the serving mode. Uh, he begins to describe this idea of serving one another. And then he describes two different ways in which uh, historically the church has operated in serving one another. He describes two different ways. Number one is through speaking, gifts of speaking, and then gifts of serving. So gifts of speaking can be kind of like what I'm doing right now, just talking. Like it takes a lot of energy to think about what I want to say and then formulate it and then whittle it down from a two-hour, three-hour sermon to just 30 minutes. You're welcome, by the way. Um, but the point of the matter is and it, it, it's, it's, it's something that allows it shapes the way that we think. Um, it's, not the, it's not the most important one. It is an important part of the community. Again, some of you guys have unique gifts of speaking whereby you just have unique abilities to encourage people. Have you been around people like that? You, you, you talk to them for any length of time and they, you walk away from that conversation. You're like, man, I feel so encouraged. So, I feel so lifted up. What they said, how they said it, the tone in which they said it, the verses that they shared with me, they had no idea, but what they said encouraged me. You walk away feeling, man, I feel, I feel built up. I feel like I want to just keep going on. I feel like I don't want to now give up because of what they had to say. That is a gift of speaking. And, and some of us, we, we use it um, not strategically. It's just kind of randomly, periodically. And I think what he is inviting us into, Peter is saying, is that as we follow Jesus, as we begin to discover what are those specific gifts that God has given us, and as we use those faithfully, that, that we will begin to move into a realm of intentionality, whereby our gifts are being able to be used by God to bring regular cadences of blessing in other people's lives. So the next thing he describes are gifts of serving. Listen to how he says this. Again, I'll just read verse 11. He says, do you have the gift of speaking? 
then speak as though God himself is speaking through you. Um, some of your translations might say, speak as you speak the oracles of God. Um, it's just another way of saying that, that, for example, when someone speaks and they're using it as a gift of God, it's not me just going freestyle and just sharing the depths of whatever experience that I've ever had. That might be helpful at some point to some people, but at the end of the day, that does not have eternal value. That's going to take you on through the deepest, darkest values of your life. But what will is God's word. So, so my aim is to try to synchronize as best as I can what I'm going to say with what God has already said. Does that make sense? So if God's given you the gift of prophecy or the gift of encouragement or the gift of exhortation or any other form of speaking gifts, uh, learn to synchronize whatever it is that God has put on your heart with Scripture. Scripture is what ultimately has the final say. That we we recognize that anything that we say that's going to be in contradiction to that obviously is not the voice of God. It's what the Old Testament would describe as is the voice of a false prophet. Someone that claims to be acknowledging or speaking forth what God has to say, but in reality is not the voice of God either. And again, those exist. Jesus describes that throughout his teachings. He said, beware of false prophets. There are those that come along and they claim to be speaking on behalf of God. And yet there's nothing of God's word in what they have to say. So again, it's important for us to learn how to discern. Is that the voice of God? Coming through the voice of a human, that's the way God works, by the way. God uses human agents. Um, Or is it just simply the voice of a human being? Again, I think of social media. Social media has become this, this field of experts. Have you noticed that? Everybody is a is an expert. I was going to say a word I probably shouldn't have probably gotten emails. But everybody is an expert these days. But an expert in what? In what? I, honestly, like in what? At the end of the day, what type of expertise is it actually going to bring about radical transformation in a person's life? There, especially in a world today that is the information age, where there's more information than ever before. It's really easy to, be, to get information fatigue. Have you ever felt that? Like there's so much information out there. It's one of the beauties of why I would say, as a follower of Jesus, our greatest like, gift from God is to simply bring together the community, like what we're doing right now, back to under the teaching of what has God already said, what has been the main corpus that has shaped communities of Jesus for the past 2,000 years, and what has been the main body of wisdom that goes all the way back up to the very God who created all things, the sources of wisdom. That, that's, that's the beauty of this. We don't have to sit around and guess. We don't have, I mean, again, there's oftentimes things we have to discern, we have to interpret, we have to try to figure out, we have to process, but then we have to ask the question, how does this particular word of wisdom apply into, you know, 21st century America, California? How does that work that way? There's a lot of questions to unravel and to unpack and to think through, but the point of the matter is, is that we desperately need God's word. That's what will rescue us. That's what will give us hope. That's what will reformat and reshape who you are and your understanding, your perceptions of identity. Without that, you and I are left with this massive menu of options to choose from. And that's exhausting. That's exhausting. So, as we begin to think about even the idea of serving, he goes on to say, do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. I love this. 
Have you ever like had an opportunity to maybe serve other people and you show up, you're like, I don't really want to be here. I don't really have anything to give. I don't even have the energy to give. And I really don't even want to be here. You ever felt like that? I feel like that all the time. Not all the time, but a lot of times. There, honestly, I'm not joking. There are Sundays I come, I'm so filled with anxiety. I'm driving and my, my hands are shaking. It's not just because I had a couple cups of coffee. I'm anxious. And I don't, I don't particularly want to enter into a spot where I just feel anxious. And I'm praying, God, give me everything that you told me, you promised, you said for me to just show up, to be present. And you said you will give me the strength that I need in that moment to do what I'm called to do. I, I like to think of it this way. You and I have uh, a role to play. God has a role to play. Our role to play is to just simply show up and be present. Just show up and be present. I, again, I can't even tell you how many times I have not wanted to be present. But I just be present. And as you learn that practice over a long history of life, it actually shapes a particular type of character in you. And it begins to become very applicable in all areas of your life, whether it be a, a husband or a wife or a mom or a dad or a, a, uh, an employee or someone that owns a business or a corporation or whatever. Showing up and being present is really the majority of the battle. Because especially in a world in which is consistently giving us options as well as affirmation. Just run. Do what you want to do. Life's hard. Just leave. Life's challenging. Marriage is tough. Go find a new spouse. They're out there. It's easy. The rewards are huge. The benefits are great. But at the end of the day, it's a lie. We give into that. And we lead down a path that leads to brokenness. The path that scripture invites us into is one that is a long obedience in the same direction. And part of that is just simply showing up, saying, I will be here. I don't know where the strength is going to come from because I don't feel strong. I don't feel empowered. I don't feel courageous. I feel like I just want to cower. I feel like I want to go fetal position. I just want to disappear. And yet I'm going to, by faith, be present and just trust God to do what only God can do. It's a whole different way of living. And if you've never lived that way, I invite you to think about what would it look like for you to step into that. So as we go on, um, hopefully all of this at some point will make an enormous amount of beauty and strength for us to be able to step in this. Because right now, I can sense even things I'm suggesting, it could feel a little overwhelming. Like, oh my gosh, my life is already packed to the brim, I already feel overwhelmed with X, Y, and Z. And now I'm being told to serve and to speak and to do it joyfully and don't complain. And do. And that feels like law. I'll get to it. It's the whole type. He goes on to say, do it with the strength and energy that God supplies. God gives us everything we need. And lastly, and we'll move on to some final stuff. And then he goes on to say, he ends with this little uh, doxology. He says, all glory and power to him forever and ever Amen. I love that. It's like his way of just saying as he's writing, it's like, man, God is so good. All glory, all honor, all power is given to God. Now, I want to move in to just some final thoughts uh, that I think are really going to be essential and helpful for us. Because like I said, right now, all the things I just shared with you, some of you might be nodding, being like, that's awesome. That's really good. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. But others of you are like, oh my gosh, it just feels overwhelming. Because life is already hard. And now I've had this religious spin of here's more stuff for you to do for God. 
Again, some of you type A personalities, you're overachievers, you're like, I'm up for the task. Others of you are just like, oh my gosh, I want to run now. But this is where it gets really good. Because at the end of the day, I think it's really important to note that the Christian movement, this is where I want to move on to this next little phase in terms of thinking about this, that the movement of Jesus is ultimately this movement that has begun in beauty. Begun in beauty. Now, again, Peter's writing this. He's writing this to a community of uh, Jesus followers that are trying to be faithful to Jesus throughout the ancient known world that are facing tremendous amount of uh, uh, hostility and opposition. And he's telling them, look, make sure that in the midst of this relationship that you have with other people that are constantly pushing against you, make sure you pray, make sure that you love them, and make sure that you serve them. Why can Peter say that without crushing these people to whom he's writing? Because, here's the really most important answer, because these people to whom he's writing, they know and have been connected to a greater storyline that involves God who served them. Now, and I'm going to make this really clear. And the point that I'd make is this. You've, I've talked about this before, but throughout the Bible, you can read kind of a little bit of a, a paradigm, what's called the imperative indicative paradigm. And the big idea is uh, when we just simply talk about imperatives, things that you're supposed to do, calls to action, and we don't anchor those things to do in the indicatives. In other words, what God has already done. Indicative just simply points to something that God has done for us. When we, when we fail to do that, when we just simply reduce Christianity to a list of things that you are responsible for doing, and we divorce that or untether that from the things that God has already done, then we have a religion of service and duty that I promise you, you will burn out. You will consistently feel weighted down. You will always feel pressure to perform. And when you fail, you'll be crushed. And some of you have been in Christian contexts like that. And I'm sorry that you've had to experience that. And to put it in a simple context, it's a context or a culture that is about service, activity, and duty without anchoring into the service, activity, and duty of what God has done for you. And this is where I want to finish just with regard to thinking about this, into the picture of what Peter, no doubt, had in his mind. So if you guys want, why don't you turn to the book of John. I'm going to read kind of a bit of a lengthy passage. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but it basically spans John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. And again, a handful of selected passages from that. I just want you to enter into the story, and I want you to listen to this. Because, again, Peter is a central player in this particular story, and Peter is the central author of what we had just read. So the very one who's saying, hey, make sure you guys pray, love, and serve one another. He's writing this to a community of people that already know this story, no doubt. No doubt. And this is Peter writing who has already been radically transformed. So listen to the story, and we'll finish with some final thoughts. Peter writes, or uh, John writes about the life of Jesus, and he says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. During supper, when the devil had already entered in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it to his waist. Now this is uh, kind of like street art in a lot of ways, what Jesus is doing here, performative. 
Jesus is actually acting something out here. So some of you are like, wait, what? Yes, Jesus is acting something out here. What he's doing, it's, it'd be kind of like Jesus doing, like, I'm going to do a charade, but I'm going to act it out. What is, he, what is he doing? He's literally clothing himself in the garments of a slave, a servant. Why? The story tells us, listen. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, this is Peter we just read, who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. Why would Peter be so adamant against this? Because in Peter's mind, again, Peter's unformed, untrained, undisciplined mind, maybe even add arrogant mind, he's like, you're a servant. You're God. I'm here to serve you. That's what, that's what people do to gods. Gods don't serve people. People serve gods. Jesus is literally saying, no, the whole order has been appended. This is not religion. This is not paganism. This is not what you've been used to. This is not the status quo, what has been around for hundreds, if not thousands upon thousands upon thousands. This is a radically new way of reorienting humanity to who God is. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to completely change up everything. And then he goes on to say, verse 7, and then Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand, but now you will afterward understand. And then Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus said to him, if I do not wash, then you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. I love Peter, man. He's so just like constantly talking. I, I relate to him. Just like not always knowing what he's saying, but he's just talking and then thinking it's all going to kind of work out in the end. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Verse 12, it goes on to say, When he had washed their feet, then he put on the outer garment and he resumed his place and he said to them, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because I'm so. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example so that you should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And what Jesus, I think, is saying is really clear. I've come here to not only serve you in word, in speech, in talking, good sermons that you guys have all kind of gave head nods to, but also in my actions, by laying down my life, by me washing your feet, by me serving you. And Jesus is literally turning the entire order upside down on its head. And what's absolutely remarkable about this is that this would be the definition of beauty. Some of you guys are familiar with St. Augustine. Um, Augustine was an early follower of Jesus around 300s, and he radically met Jesus and was transformed, changed. He was basically studying with philosophers, a super smart dude, he was a lawyer, and uh, he met Jesus in a radical way. Uh, one of the things that Augustine realized is that the way that one grows spiritually is not necessarily by way of intentionality or will and or intellect. 
both of which Augustine did not lack. He was extremely disciplined, and he was extremely smart. But he recognized that's not how you and I are transformed. The way that you and I are transformed is by our affections and desires coming to life. To put it another way, you and I are shaped and changed by those things that we love. It's as simple as that. I'll give you an example. It's kind of a negative example, but it's an example nonetheless. I remember talking to a guy years ago who was addicted to porn. And he had a revelation in his life where he began to realize the reason why he's addicted to porn is because he loves naked bodies. Period. More than he loves Jesus. It's not a condemnation. It's just an acknowledgement. And when he began to realize, I love a naked human body more than I love Jesus who gave himself for me. That began to put things into a proper perspective to say, I need to repent from that because I made an idol out of something created. It's good and beautiful, but it's created. And it's not the greatest thing on planet Earth or in the cosmos. Jesus is. And that began a shift and a change in his heart and his life that began to put Jesus into a space where Jesus alone can be exalted and praised and worshipped for who and all that he is. In other words, it set him free. It set him free from this bondage, this enslavement that he had to these images. The idea of having a heart shaped by that which is beautiful brings about transformation. Augustine would go on to describe that the three aims of a preacher, and he would describe it something along these lines, is to instruct, delight, and move. Or to put it another way, to inform, delight, and form. To inform, meaning what does the scripture say about God? What's it, what's it inviting us into? Uh, and then secondly, what's it inviting us to delight in? What, are, what, what can we look at and observe that's beautiful, that's good, that's remarkable, that captures our, our attention, that if we allow it to capture our attention, we actually may be enchanted by it, like transformed, captivated by its beauty. And then ultimately, when that happens, then we get brought into this process of formation. We begin to change. And what I would suggest to you is that the Christian faith is really about that, looking at the beauty of God and what God has done so much so that that radically reorients everything, how you think about God, how you think about other human beings, and how you think about yourself. And to the degree that you begin to see and capture the beauty, the essence of who God is and what he's done, then you begin to delight in this God. And you want the entirety of your life to reflect him. So when you look at the story of Jesus clothing himself, in the clothing of a servant, and then washing the disciples' feet. Even Judas Iscariot, who I omitted that little part, but it's not there nonetheless. Jesus washes all of these people's feet. Those who were loyal to him, those who were disloyal to him. He washes their feet. He serves them. That's an act of beauty. To the degree that you even apply that personally to say, what is salvation? What has Jesus offered to you? He has offered to wash you. He's offered to serve you. What do you need? What are those areas in your life where you find yourself deficient, where you find yourself bound? What are those areas in your life where you find yourself in just deep 
dark trenches and valleys. You find yourself trapped. You find yourself alone. You find yourself lonely. You find yourself dealing with meaninglessness. You find yourself confused. What are those areas? The gospel says, let Jesus serve you. Let God come into that, into the malaise, into the confusion, into the chaos, and to bring what only he alone can bring, which is new life. The last thing I want to end on is this idea that this movement was ultimately, this movement of Jesus' people was shaped by beauty. And I want to just finish with this and I'm done. I want to read you a quick little quote out of what was called uh, the letter to uh, Dignitas. And uh, this was basically captured as a way of articulating like how one person that was trying to make sense of who these Christians are, this is probably around late 100s, early 200s, and he's looking at the Christian community. He's like trying to make sense. Who are these people? Who are these people? They claim to worship some Jewish guy that died and rose again. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but who are these people? Listen to what he had to write. This uh, account is really fascinating. Just listen to what he wrote. He wrote, Christians inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities. It is while following the customs of these natives in clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary life that they display to us their wonderful and admittedly strikingly way, striking way of life. So he's straight off the bat saying, we don't know who these people are necessarily. They live amidst everybody else. They live in Greek and barbarian cities. They, they dress the same clothing. They act the same way to some degree. But there's something about them that is not entirely consistent with the rest of the culture around them. And that, he says, is striking. It's beautiful. This is what it goes on to say. As citizens, they participate in everything with others. Yet they endure everything as though they were strangers. They marry like everyone else. They have children, but they don't destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. One pastor described it this way. They are promiscuous with hospitality, but not with their sexuality. They pass their days on earth. But they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws while surpassing the laws by their own lives. They love all. They're persecuted by all. They're poor, and yet they make many rich. They lack everything, and yet they overflow in nothing and everything. They are reviled, but they bless. They are insulted, and they repay the insult with honor. They do good. They are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if they were raised from the dead. They are assailed and they are persecuted. Yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. How do you describe this community? The best way I would describe it is they were ravished by beauty. They saw Jesus, followed upstream, and recognized that Jesus alone is good. So my invitation to you this morning, last little slide, is just think about this. God has shown hospitality and service to us. We were the strangers. We were the outsiders. And yet God says, come here. Come to my table. Allow me to reshape you. What is it that you have in your life that you need me to help you? This is really, really good news. If you just pause and sit back and think about this, Somebody with this vast amount of goodness and wealth and power who steps into our lives and says, let me help you. The only thing that would limit that would be for us to take the typical American approach that says, I don't need help. I can put myself up by my own bootstraps. Thank you. But a Christian is one that says, I have needs. And Jesus alone meets those. 
So my invitation to you is to think about what are those areas in your life that need to be ravished, re-enchanted by the incredible love of God. And then as that begins to reshape you, how does that form you into the type of person that Peter says, pray, love, and serve? How can we do that? Because we are a community of people that God has interceded for us on our behalf. That he has loved us in ways that we can, can't even begin to describe. And he's served us all the way to the point of giving his life for us. So as we close right now, why don't we all stand? I want to pray over us. Father, we confess to you just our need. And wherever we're at right now, why don't you just take a moment and think about those areas in your life. Where are they? Name them. You don't have to say them out loud. Send your breath in your mind. Say, God, I need you to help me here, fill in the blank. I need your presence here, fill in the blank. I need your wisdom here, fill in the blank. Invite him into that space. Ask him to do what only he alone could do that is always described and articulated as making all things new. What are those areas in your life that can only be described as decay or rot or broken or tethered or burned, charred? Jesus says, I'll make it all new. Ask him to step into those areas. Invite him. Know that he's a God that loves to give good gifts. So, Father, I pray for my friends, family, for all sinners and saints in this community here right now. Meet us right where we're at. Give us all that we need. We thank you for your presence alone that heals and restores and renews. Have your way with us, we pray. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.